0: Hi guys, and welcome to Time Travelling Teamp, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy.
1: And I'm Trisha. In today's story, we'll be discussing the sensorites. We'll be going through some trivia, discussing the characters, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. Before we get to all that, though, Paddy, why don't you give us a recap of the story?
0: Absolutely. Episode 1, Strangers in Space. The Doctor announces that the outside view screen is filled with static, so they cannot see their new location. After a brief retrospective of their time together, the travellers head out to investigate their new surroundings. They appear to have landed in the command bridge of a spaceship, which explains the confused motion readings on the TARDIS sensors. They encounter several crew members sitting at their stations, but they appear to all be dead. Susan says that they should go back to the TARDIS, as she has an uneasy feeling about the whole scenario. Before they go, the doctor notices that the design of the watches they are wearing. They are based on kinetic energy and stop working after 24 hours of non-movement by the wearer, indicating the crew have been dead for at least a day. Susan, however, points out that the bodies are still warm, and the group decide to go back to the TARDIS. As they are about to enter, one of the bodies starts to come to and asks for something from a nearby shelf. He uses the device and regains full consciousness. He asks the group to use it on the other crew member, and she also wakes up. He introduces himself as Captain Maitland. And Carol is his co-pilot and they were in some sort of a hypersleep. They come from Earth in the 28th century and they say that to the travelers that they should leave. The doctor questions them more and they reveal that they are orbiting a planet called the Sensphere, and its inhabitants the Sensorites have prevented them from leaving. Every time they try to escape the Sensorites put them back into hypersleep but show no other malicious intent towards them. As they are talking an unseen figure removes the lock from the TARDIS. Barbara notices a burning smell and they discover that the TARDIS lock is gone. The Doctor and Susan say with the lock removed, they are permanently shut out of the TARDIS. Suddenly, the ship begins to shake violently and Maitland says it is the work of the Sensorites. They force him to place the ship on a collision course with the planet, but the Doctor and Ian, who are immune to their powers, manage to regain the control of the ship and avert disaster. As they are eating, the Travellers and their new friends discuss the malevolent superior nature of the Sensorites. Carl says that their third crew member, John, is the only one to have seen one in person, but Maitland refuses to elaborate further. Susan and Barbara go to retrieve water from a storage room, but unbeknownst to them, John, who appears to be in a fugue state, closes the bridge door behind them and follows them down the corridor to the storage room. The doctor is curious as to why Maitland and Carl are being so secretive. They suddenly realise Barbara and Susan haven't come back yet and they dash to find them. They find all the doors to the storage room have been sealed off, and apologizes that there is nothing they can do to help them. Carl reveals John was her fiancé, and that the sensorites experimented him more than the others, and as a result, he seems to have completely lost his mind. She convinces Maitland to help save Barbara and Susan. John chases after Barbara and Susan, but breaks down in tears when he corners them and then flees. They find him in the hallway, and he seems completely helpless. They offer to the help look after him. They suddenly hear the sound of sensorite ship's approaching, and he offers to protect them from what is about to happen. Maitland attempts to cut through the bridge door, but stops when he hears the Sensorite's ships approaching. They see the ships approaching rapidly on the viewscreen, and the Doctor wonders if they are coming to enslave them or kill them. Whatever their intentions, the travellers and the crew need to be ready to defend themselves. Ian sees a whiskered, mottled-faced figure appear outside one of the viewports. The Sensorites have arrived. Episode 2. The Unwilling Warriors The Sensorite uses his mental ability to paralyse Maitland and Carl, but the Doctor manages to arouse Maitland and he goes back to cutting through the bridge door. The doctor urges everyone to remain calm and clear-headed as that is how the Sensorites gained control of their victims through conflicting emotions of the mind. In the corridor, John is struggling to resist the instructions of the Sensorites to attack Susan and Barbara. Susan says that in order to help him, both she and Barbara should create a mental roadblock that will push the Sensorites back. They combine their thought processes to defy the will of the Sensorites and it seems to work as the two invading creatures seem to be suddenly wracked with pain. Although they are successful, Susan passes out from the strain. Susan comes to as the Doctor and Carol are discussing why the Sensorites have been attacking John so much. Ian appears and says that he might know the cause as he heard John mumble something before he fell asleep. It's possible that due to his role as the ship's mineralogist, John discovered something on the sensphere that the Sensorites want to be kept secret. The Doctor says that it might be time to reach out to the Sensorites in an effort to discover what they want and to also recover the lock of the TARDIS. The two sensorites from earlier seem to have recovered from their mental resistance and receive a communication from the First Elder via their telepathic relay devices. They are instructed to observe the new arrival, especially Susan and Barbara. If they encounter resistance or hostility, they are to summon aid. The travellers and the crew are investigating John's spectrograph readings to see what he could have discovered, but can't seem to find anything of importance. On closer inspection though, the doctor discovers the planet is rich in a valuable mineral called molybdenum. Suddenly, the sensorites launch another mental attack affecting Maitland and Carol, so Ian and Barbara go off in search of them. They find the two sensorites, and Ian sends Barbara back to Maitland to find a way to seal them into their room. The sensorites advance on Ian, but make no aggressive move towards him. Maitland cannot assist them due to still being under the control of the sensorites. so Barbara gets John to help her lock the doors. Ian indicates that they seem to be just as scared of him as he is of them. The Sensorites communicate with Susan telepathically and use her as a go-between for the two groups. They agree to talk peacefully and the Sensorites enter the bridge. They account for their actions, saying that they have been mistrustful of humans since they brought a disease to the planet years beforehand. They inform the travellers that they will be brought to the Sensphere, where they will live out the rest of their lives. The group refused the terms and the Doctor promises to cause them a great deal of trouble unless they return the Tardis lock. The Sensorites leave to discuss what they shall do and the Doctor tells the others that he has gleaned a vital piece of information from the meeting. The Sensorites are nearly blind in the dim lighting. Suddenly Susan answers another telepathic message. The Sensorites come to collect her and Susan informs the group that she is to go down to the planet or the others will all be killed. Episode 3, Hidden Danger Ian and Barbara chase after Susan, but she is reluctant to return as she thinks going with the Sensorites is for the best. Despite her protest, the Doctor orders her to come back to him and when the Sensorites attempt to stop her, he tells Ian to turn off the lights. The Doctor's theory proves to be correct, as the Sensorites stumble about in terror in the darkness. With the Sensorites at their mercy, the Doctor and Ian demand the lock of the TARDIS back. The Sensorites say that they must discuss this with their elders and send a psychic communication to the sensphere. While they are doing this, the Doctor and Susan argue over her taking matters into her own hands without discussion, and him still treating her like a small child. The Doctor accuses the Sensorites of causing dissent between him and his granddaughter, And upon seeing his anger susan agrees to follow his lead the censorites inform him that they have been instructed to listen to them and so the doctor requests a meeting with the elders to discuss the freedom of both himself and the crew carol and maitland are trying their best to comfort john but he doesn't seem to recognize them and all he wants is for the voices in his head to stop carol despairs that she will never be able to get her fiance back the censorites say that the doctor ian and susan carol and john can go down to the planet but Barbara and Maitland must remain on board with the other sensorites. To help ease Ian's suspicions, they offer to try and help John recover. The doctor asks them why they use their telepathic abilities in such an antagonistic way. One of them explains that ten years before, five humans came exploring to the planet, and they were welcomed. They quarrelled for an unknown reason, and two of them departed. Their ship exploded in orbit, and it is assumed that it was caused by the remaining humans having snuck on board in an attempt to seize back control. Since then, sensorites have been dying from a disease that they previously mentioned. It now appears that the Doctor will gain the TARDIS lock back, but in exchange for him using his knowledge to help find a cure. However, the Council of Elders appears to not be on the same page in terms of the First Elder's use of the Doctor and his friends and his admiration for them. The Second Elder and the City Administrator seem to be distrustful of humans, with the City Administrator plotting to kill them at the first sign of trouble. He orders one of his subordinates to program a disintegrator beam to target the seating area that the visitors will be stationed at. Upon arriving on the planet's surface, they discover that the Sensorites live in a caste-based society, with everyone fulfilling a role in their society. The closer they get to the Council Chambers, the more agitated John becomes. Susan informs Carol that this could be to their benefit, as due to the psychic assaults he has received, John is more prone to picking up the negative intentions of the Sensorites. They meet with the first elder and John senses no malice from him, but he can detect it from somewhere else in the building. Back in the disintegrator room, the second elder enters and orders the beam to be deactivated, as he is satisfied that the visitors mean no harm. The city administrator reluctantly agrees, but voices his distrust of the travelers. Once the second elder is gone, he begins to recruit his subordinates to his cause. Back in the council chambers, the first elder is recounting the story of the five human explorers. When the molybdenum deposits were discovered, the sensorites telepathically picked up one of the explorer's intentions to mind the entire planet and saw the end of their way of life. Feeling that they had no other choice, the sensorites imprisoned them through telepathic suggestion. They begin to eat and the first elder notices that the travellers have been given substandard food and water and orders it for it to be replaced with a selection from the elder's supplies. As they are dining, Ian begins to complain of a burning throat and starts to cough and choke and collapses to the floor. The first elder informs them that Ian appears to have contracted the disease, which is killing the sensorites. Episode 4. A Race Against Death The doctor examines Ian and asks if the disease is contagious, but the first elder replies it is not. The doctor also confirms with him that none of the elders have been afflicted with the disease. He then realizes that the source of the disease must be in the water that Ian drank from. The doctor asks to be given access to a laboratory so he can work on finding a cure. The First Elder informs him that no patient has lived past the third day. The Doctor requests permission to be given access to the TARDIS so he can use the equipment on board to save everyone on the planet. The First Elder says he will need to discuss it with the Second Elder before he can make a decision. The Second Elder advises the use of caution, as they have no way of knowing that the Doctor won't bring more humans to mind the planet. He leaves the First Elder to think on what he said and encounters the city administrator, trying to interfere with John's treatment. He recounts the recent events and the city administrator leaps on his uncertainty by claiming Ian is not sick and that the cure is a ruse to destroy the censorites. John feels his evil intentions but he is unable to formulate his words coherently and the city administrator says that this is a sign of his guilt. The second elder says that he must warn the first elder and leaves just as Carol enters. The administrator takes offence at her not recognising his status and badge of office. She apologises, saying that from behind, all sensorites look similar, and she can only distinguish them by their badges of office. This seems to strike a chord with the city administrator, who leaves quickly. Meanwhile, the doctor is giving out to the first elder over his hemming and hawing over the situation. The second elder arrives and converses telepathically with the first elder, but Susan is not able to pick up any signals from them. The first elder denies the doctor's requests and informs him that he can instead work in one of their laboratories. The doctor shouts in frustration at him, and Susan points out that they also appear to be highly sensitive to sound. The doctor tells Susan to look after Ian while he goes to work on the cure. The first elder informs the city administrator that the doctor will be working on one of their laboratories, which further infuriates him. After he leaves, the city administrator informs his subordinates of his plans to impersonate the second elder by taking his sash. The doctor reviews his preliminary tests with the scientists assigned to help him, and informs them that the water contains traces of atropine poison. He asks about the case history of the virus and is told that 3 in every 10 sensorites have died from it, despite the fact that every district in the city gets the water from the same source. He says that they need to test every district's water stocks. Districts 1 through 7 show negative results for the poison, but they discover atropine in the next test, so the doctor starts to work on a cure. Once it is ready, he sends a sample to be given to Ian. The doctor goes to speak with Carl, who is attending to John. He says that he finds it unusual that according to the case reports that the poison seems to be moving between the districts. John once again tries to warn them of the plot against them, but he is still not coherent enough. The doctor asks Carl to take note of what John says going forward as he is going on an expedition to discover the cause of the poisoning of the water. The second elder attends a meeting organised by the city administrator and is captured by his subordinates. The city administrator again says that Ian is not sick, and the cure is a means to exterminate the sensorites. He takes the second elder's badge of office and says that he will sabotage the cure. He tests out his new disguise. It works better than he had hoped, as the person he tested on is the scientist carrying the cure for Ian. He says that he will take it instead, and once the scientist is gone, he smashes it to the ground. He tells his subordinate that if, if he is right, then Ian will be fine, and if he is wrong, then Ian will die and know that the doctor was telling the truth. The doctor arrives at the entrance of the reservoir with one of his assistants, who tells him that he is afraid to enter the cave due to the constantly malfunctioning lights and the beasts that dwell within the reservoir caves. The doctor sends him back, suspicious that the potential source of the poison is defended by the two greatest fears of the sensorites. Susan is worrying about what happened to the cure that was sent for Ian, and so the first elder sends her to the laboratory. She manages to find another void of the cure and administers it to Ian. The first elder wonders why the second elder never arrived at the cure, as he was previously told, but he is distracted from these thoughts when the scientist returns to inform him of the doctor entering the reservoir. Ian and Susan state that they will go after them, despite warnings from the first elder that all previous expeditions have met with disaster. He sends a mental message to the second elder, saying that they have misjudged the intentions of the travellers. The city administrator forces him to reveal what is being said, as he has taken his family hostage. The city administrator is happy to hear this as he is sure that the doctor will meet his doom in the caves. Meanwhile, at the caves, the doctor has discovered the source of the poison. Deadly nightshade has been growing in the caves near the waterways. However, his feelings of vindication are cut short when he hears a monstrous howl approaching him. Episode 5 Kidnap Ian and Susan discover the unconscious form of the doctor after hearing him call out. His clothes are torn to pieces as if he had been shredded by the claws of some huge beast. He eventually comes to and is incredulous when Susan tells him that the first vial of the cure never made it to Ian and that she had to go to the lab herself. The doctor says that they are beset by enemies on all sides and they must find the sensorite that is working against them. As they leave, a sensorite observes them from the shadows. Back in the city, Carol laments the fact that the sensorites are unable to enter the caves to aid the travellers. The first elder instead tries to ease her misery by saying John is nearing full recovery. John is becoming more and more coherent, but the Chief Scientist says that there is no plot and that his statements are merely the remaining effects of the psychological trauma he has undergone. The Sensorite from the cave returns to inform the City Administrator about what he saw. The City Administrator forces the Second Elder, to summon the Chief Warrior, to deliver the key for the Disintegrator so that he can use it against the Travelers. The Travelers return just in time to see the City Administrator retrieve the key from the Chief Warrior. The Doctor attempts to speak with him, but he flees concerned that the Doctor could potentially see through his disguise. They instead decide to go petition the First Elder to allow Barber to come down to the planet. The City Administrator returns to put the key into the Disintegrator, but the Second Elder manages to break free of his guard and sabotage the key before he is beaten to the ground. The guard realizes that he has killed him and says that they should flee, but the City Administrator says that it could still work to their advantage. In the Council Chambers, the Travellers are discussing the recent odd behaviour of the Second Elder. Suddenly, the city administrator, wearing his normal badge of office, enters with his subordinate and the chief warrior. The subordinate accuses the doctor of having killed the second elder for control of the key, using the chief warrior as a witness as he had seen the doctor caught after the second elder upon his return to the city. However, Ian manages to catch out the subordinate in a lie. He said that the doctor had pulled a weapon from his coat, but the torn coat had been left back at the cave. The city administrator changes his strategy and states that the second elder had a vendetta against the travellers, citing his initial hostility and his odd behaviour when being impersonated. The first elder is swayed by this, and along with the misguided backing of the doctor and his companions, offers the city administrator the role of second elder. John has fully recovered and reunites with his delighted Carol. He says that he can't seem to fully remember any of his previous experiences. The travellers enter and Susan asks him about his earlier comments about betrayal, but he says he can't really remember. All he knows for certain is that he sends a sense right plotting against them and all that he can remember was that he wore a distinct badge of office. The new second elder enters and becomes convinced that he is safe. He demands that Susan send the doctor to the first elder and abruptly leaves. His odd behaviour triggers a thought in Susan and she asks John to describe the badge of office that he saw. The group realize that the city administrator was the enemy all along and that they have now helped put him into a new position of power. The Doctor and Ian discuss their recent discovery and decide that they need to gather proof to show what the city administrator has been up to. They decide to go to the reservoir again to investigate the poisoning and they inform the First Elder of this, who sends a telepathic communication for weapons and supplies to be brought for them. They also request that Barbara come down to keep Susan company, which the First Elder grants. The Doctor explains that Susan will only want to come with them and so requests that their leaving be kept secret. Their weapons, supplies and a map of the reservoir arrive, but unbeknownst to them, have all been sabotaged by the city administrator and his accomplice, who he freed from jail. Ian and the Doctor depart, not knowing the danger that they are walking into, and the First Elder thinks about all that has occurred and comes to the conclusion that a censorite is behind everything, but he cannot fathom for what. Meanwhile, Susan, John and Carol are discussing the couple's plans for the future and wondering where the Doctor and Ian have gone. Carl offers to go look for them, but once she's out of the room, an unseen figure ambushes her. Episode 6 A Desperate Venture. Carl's assailants are revealed to be the city administrator and his subordinate. They force her to write a letter to the John, saying that she has gone back to the ship. The letter is sent to John and Susan, who show it to the recently arrived Barbara. They agree that the city administrator is most likely behind it and the disappearance of the doctor and Ian. The first elder joins them and they tell him their suspicions, but do not implicate the city administrator he is initially doubtful of their belief that Carl has been taken hostage but agrees to let them search the building for her he also tells him where the doctor and ian have gone which causes susan to worry at the suggestion of the first elder they go to search the disintegrator room first inside the room the subordinate is taunting carol when john arrives john uses the sensorite's weakness to sound against him by shouting at him the chief warrior enters and takes the subordinate back into custody the First Elder is alarmed by the plot that has been occurring and confides in the city administrator that he will put a stop to it. Susan and Barbara enter and inform him of the sabotage supplies given to the Doctor and Ian. He laments their potential passing, but Barbara says that if they get if they get the proper map to the reservoir, then they will attempt a rescue. Despite the administrator's plea, the First Elder promises to help them however he can as thanks for all that they have done for the sensorites. Meanwhile in the caves, the Doctor and Ian have discovered the sabotage, but decide to press on with their investigation. As they go further into the caves, they hear a movement up ahead, and Ian ambushes the figure, but it manages to get away. Ian reveals that it was a man, and shows the Doctor a shoulder patch that he managed to rip away from the figure. It has the letters I-N-E-E-R on it, and the Doctor says it is most likely a survivor from the previous human ship. They go after the figure to find out more, but they find out that he is not alone, and they are the ones that end up being ambushed. The strangers ask if the Sensorites are still alive and if they have a ship. They refuse to go outside for fear of being spied on by the Sensorites and instead bring the prisoners to speak with their commander. Back in the city, Barbara requests the use of a telepathic transmitter so that she can stay in contact with Susan while she goes with John and and a few Sensorite warriors to search the reservoir. They arrive and follow Susan's instructions and also relay anything that they encounter. They come across the abandoned fake maps and several directional markings left by the doctor. The Doctor and Ian are introduced to the commander, who is acting like that they are in a war. It appears that they have loaded the poison nightshade into the various waterways in an effort to eradicate the sensorites. He also reveals he sabotaged the original spaceship when two of his crew defected and attempted to return home. The Doctor and Ian play along with his delusion and inform him that he has won the conflict. He immediately becomes suspicious of his prisoners, as he thinks that they are also after the planet's supply of molybdenum, which he says belongs to him and his crew. One of the crew members interrupts him and announces the presence of the intruders in the caves. John and Barbara are brought in and the doctor immediately gets them to play along in his deception. Together they convince the commander that a victory celebration will be held in his honour once he leaves the cave with them. He agrees and orders his men to escort the prisoners out. However, they are taken into custody by the censorite warriors who stun the commander when he attempts to attack them. Back in the city, Ian and Barbara informs the First Elder that Maitland has agreed to take the others back to Earth, and he in turn informs them that the city administrator has been banished for his treachery. They bid each other a happy farewell. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor comforts Susan, who says that her telepathy will recede once they leave the sense Sphere. The Doctor promises to help hone her abilities once they go back home. This seems to cheer Susan up, who appears to be having a bout of homesickness since an earlier discussion she had with the First Elder about their respective worlds. Together, they all watch the spaceship as it makes its way back to Earth, with Ian jokingly passing a comment about how they at least know where their next destination is. However, it seems the Doctor does not take kindly to this comment on his abilities as a pilot, and says to Ian that once they land at their next destination, he will personally escort them off the TARDIS. End of the story. So that's it for the story recap. We're now going to go over to Trisha for some trivia notes. Over to you, Trish.
1: Great. So The Sensorites was written by Peter R. Newman. Now, of all the writers we've spoken about so far, there is the least amount of information available about Peter online. In fact, most of the information available is taken from the Looking for Peter documentary included on the DVD release of The Sensorites. Which was created because there was so little known about Peter. <laughs> Some things we do know from that documentary is... Peter served in World War II, but his start as a soldier was not quite straightforward. Originally, he left school and swapped clothes with a soldier he met hoping to take his place. What he didn't know was that the soldier was actually a deserter from the army... This resulted in him having troubles with the police, who thought that he was the deserter, and there was a whole thing with that. He then got expelled from school because he had run away. He did later join the army legally, and he served in Burma, during which time he befriended a Japanese soldier. He wrote the television play Yesterday's Enemy, which he later rewrote as a screenplay for the Hammer Films Company of the same name. So the film Yesterday's Enemy by Hammer Films was one of his. He was commissioned for more scripts for Hammer, but his requests for more money kind of soured their relationship and they didn't produce any more of his work. His screenplay, The San Diego Killings, if I've pronounced that correctly, became the basis of one of the first Spaghetti Westerns, Savage Guns. Hmm. He absolutely loved the fact that he got to write for Doctor Who. Though, he did think that the Censorites costumes were a bit silly. Which I would agree with, and I'm sure we'll discuss more in a minute. (laughs) The Censorites is his only Doctor Who writing credit, and is in fact his final writing credit. Not having anything else produced after, and suffering from severe writer's block, he got a job at the Tate Gallery as a porter. There was a lot of public confusion around when Peter actually died. Some sources saying that he died in 1969, other sources saying he died in 1975, and there were talks that he may have actually committed suicide. Peter actually died in 1975 of a cerebral hemorrhage after falling down a flight of stairs at work.
0: That guy has had a very interesting life. I'd actually... I Because I haven't seen that documentary, I'd love to watch it myself.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a loan the DVD. It's a really... I mean, it's a documentary where... People discover all of this extra information, which clearly they've researched in advance, kind of like those um, who do you think you are type things. But you just sort of feel bad for the guy. He didn't have the best life, but his family clearly cared for him a great deal. His sister and his niece are interviewed in that documentary. Again, for this story, we have two directors. We have Mervyn Pinfield directing episodes one through four and Frank Cox directing episodes five and six. Mervyn Pinfield was actually the associate producer of Doctor Who, from the first story in Earthly Child up to the Romans. His directing credits for Who include this story, as well as two episodes of Planet of the Giants and all of the Space Museum. Pinfield was also known as the inventor of an early type of teleprompter or autocue, which he called the pinny prompter. He passed away in 1966, it was three years after Doctor Who started. The second director is Frank Cox. We've discussed Frank before, as he directed the second episode of the story, The Edge of Destruction. This is his last Doctor Who directorial credit, and I do think it's sad that we don't get the opportunity to see more of his work, and he didn't have an opportunity to direct an entire story by himself, always having to share with someone else.
0: Yeah, that's kind of sad.
1: This episode aired from the 20th of June to the 1st of August, 1964. Now, our guest cast, we have quite a broadcast today. So, Mm -hmm. let's get into it. First, as John, we have Stephen Darknell. I would say you may recognize Stephen, but his previous role in Doctor Who, you couldn't see his face. So, Stephen also played Vartek, the leader of the Vord, in the Keys of Marmoths. This time, we do actually get to see his face, which is great. This is his final Doctor Who appearance, and he passed away in 1994. Carol was played by Elona Rogers. She did a lot of work in the UK, Australia and New Zealand. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit though. She continued to be very active in film and television after Who, with her most recent acting credit being in 2018. Maitland is played by Lorne Cosette. Cosette. I'm going to go with Cosette. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Lorne and he passed away in 2001. First Elder is played by Eric Francis. Again, only Doctor Who credit to his name. I would say you may recognize him, but again, we don't get to see his face, so maybe not. But you may recognize his voice. He was in loads of TV shows and movies over the years, including Monty Python's The Meaning of Life in the segment The Crimson Permanent Assurance. (laughs) Eric passed away in 1991. The second elder, I'll say the original second, the actual second elder, was played by Bartlett Mullins. He passed away in 1992, and again, this is his only Doctor Who acting credit. However, he did appear on screen with another doctor, as he was in Gummage.
0: Ooh. Yeah. Let's go back and watch that again.
1: (laughs) The City Administrator is played by Peter Glaze. Another one with only one Doctor Who acting credit to his name. I'm kind of repeating myself. Peter was the host of Cracker Jack, which was a live broadcast children's TV program with sketches and games and stuff. And he presented that in the 1960s and 1970s. He actually did a sketch as a man we will later come to know in Doctor Who, the Brigadier.
0: Hmm.
1: Peter sadly died in 1983. Lastly we have the commander of the humans that were on the sense sphere this is played by John Bailey now John appeared in two more Doctor Who stories after this one he played Edward Waterfield in The Evil of the Daleks and Sesam in The Horns of Neman John passed away in 1989 and I'm going to say one thing right now going through all this trivia is one of the things about the older episodes I do find myself more often than I would like making note of such and such passed away in this year and this story in particular
0: mm.
1: it was actually quite distressing having to write that down so many times
0: it, it, it kind of it is a shame because like when, there's, when you get if it's a particular story that you like having so many of those actors that you want to see their filmography or what they've done up until now and you see them dying uh, like 20 30 odd years ago it is kind of it is kind of sad to see
1: yeah few more things about the sensorites. The working title for the story was Mind Control, which I think is a little bit on the nose. Just a tad. Russell T Davies, who many will know as the man who brought Doctor Who back in the 2000s, has acknowledged the sensorites were an influence on the basic concept of the Ood, and computer readouts revealed that the Ood sphere and the sense sphere ...are in the same star system. Ah. So those guys are neighbours. That's kind of cool. We have mentioned in the last few stories... ...that the main cast were taking holidays... ...and this story, it is the turn of Jacqueline Hill... ...who was on holiday during the recording... ...of the fourth and fifth episodes. Hence Hmm. why Barbara remained on the ship... ...while everyone else went down to the sense fair.
0: Barbara doing her best to enact the role of Thunderbird 5... ...the poor fecker that gets stuck in the space station.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but yeah. <laughs> So we've gone through the episode recap, we've discussed some trivia about the Sensorites. now it's time to discuss the characters themselves. So, Patty, what do you think of the Doctor and the Censorites?
0: Um... Again another really strong showing from Hartnell in this one uh, because this is a very doctor centric story I find um, we get to see like more of his scientific acumen this time around like between like working in the laboratory going and investigating the the cave system we I think we've now seen like a fully rounded version of the doctor because like we've seen him as a like a historical expert in what he's time traveling we've seen him as kind of an, the engineer we've seen him as a detective but now we get to see him as the scientist i thought that was kind of really cool also again william hartnell his just righteous indignation at things is a, is amazing and the, the best thing as well is like it's not that sort of like you know horror how dare you like you like uh you know it's like for he's just giving out for the sake of giving out a lot of it's justified and it's for the right reasons so it. It's kind of funny to see him when he's blustering for the wrong reasons, but it's really cool to see him bluster uh, for the right reasons. So I really enjoyed the Doctor in this story.
1: Yeah, I think his blustering in this, like I said, most of the time it's justified, or at least understandable, do you know, yeah. if not 100% justified. The thing that I found kind of humorous, though, was how it has been explained to him Time and again, and Susan explains to him every time, "Don't yell, don't yell at them. It really hurts them. Stop it." And he just can't prevent himself from doing it. And he's just like, "Oh, fine, fine, whatever." Um, (laughs) And again, it's that bluster and that kind of like self-importance that that is really part of his character. I do think it's great that we get to see his scientific knowledge in his treatment of Ian. It really kind of reminded me of going back to an unearthly child when he leaves the tardis and he's taking his samples and stuff like that that's really what he does you he explores different planets and takes measurements and and scientific notes about them we do also get to see his technical ability as well and his knowledge of spacecraft you know he very quickly jumps in to help control the ship maitland and carol's ship when it's going to crash into the sense and you know very quickly comes up with okay we're going to come out from this trajectory and then we're going to hit the thrusters and we're going to veer off course that i thought was really really good because you kind of Um, you kind of get the sense that maybe he can't fly the tardis very well
0: yeah because like you'd be there there going okay he essentially hot wires the spaceship to regain control of it and it kind of makes you wonder what else has he hot wired in his past Hmm?
1: yeah (laughs) yeah he is very protective of Susan in this story, and this is probably the one where we see the most of his nature with her. Mm. He does come off as a bit overbearing in the way a parental figure or granddad would, and because we're kind of we kind of associate a bit more with Susan, so it, he comes across as a bit harsh and controlling. But he does it because he loves her and he wants what's best for her. You know, she yeah. may have thought it was a good idea for me to go to the sense sphere alone. But he's like,
0: no, in what realm was that a good idea? And it's also the thing of where like Susan is, as opposed to being like kind of questioning her decisions. She's dead certain that this is what's best for the group. And I think maybe it's that little spark of independence that maybe frightens him a small bit.
1: Yeah, I do like his line that like it's one of the sort of duties of old age is to gather knowledge and wisdom to share with younger people mm. and I kind of had to laugh and in my head add the line, when they want it <laughs> um, this is the first inclination we get as well that the doctor is not a fan of weapons yeah his reaction to the bug zapper <laughs> type looking things um, you know we get the sense that he really doesn't like weapons which is something yeah. that you know will continue on throughout the series but at this point in time he recognizes that they do occasionally have a use he just would rather not have to use
0: them and just to explain to people the bug zapper things so the sensory weapons are essentially those electrified tennis rackets you use to swat flies
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah.
1: i also we yeah sorry go on
0: uh, i was gonna say like one thing that we uh, get to see in the story as well is the doctor's fashion sense as he very dashingly shows off his new cape
1: I literally, my next line was, I love his cape. And I love how he loves his cape as well. Yeah. Which is great. We kind of get that sense of the sort of playful nature he has with clothes.
0: Yeah, because like, if you think about it, he's an alien that's like had all of time and space to kind of go through. And he lands, like we first encounter him in 1963 in London. And like Susan's, you know, very kind of in her hip and trendy clothing. Whereas he's dressed like he's in the Edwardian times. And it's like, okay, not quite the style of the day, but I think it's stylish on me.
1: Yeah, and he never changes his clothes. No. Nope. This is this is his first clothing change that we've seen. Yeah. The thing as well is this is this is a great story for the doctor, we get to see lots of sides of him. But we are reminded that there are certain parts of his character that we maybe don't like, which is he is still a mistrusting old man. That is still yes. there. And we can see yeah. that in his response to Ian at the end of the episode. Now, I haven't watched next week's episode, so I don't know if yeah. this is kind of meant as a joke, but he is someone who, when his ego gets bruised...
0: Yeah, so just to give you the heads up, uh, no, this, the first episode of next week's story, it, it, it's a promise. It's not a, a, a joking threat. It's a promise.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So that part of him is still there, which I don't mind, because it makes him a complete person.
0: Yeah, and like... I see. The thing is, like the first sixteen stories of Doctor Who, um, are what I would consider to be like just a one of the best uh, arcs of science fiction storytelling that I've seen in a very long time across different shows, and I think without trying to give too much away, the Doctor cares for Ian and Barbara more than he would initially let on, so I think whenever the concept of home does come up, it annoys him. Because he's having fun.
1: Yeah, I think he also, you know, he doesn't like them
0: making fun of him. Well, yeah, no, that too as well. No, like, but he would. Yeah, and like, yeah, like I suppose, like to be fair, like, it's the kind of anything, like yo, was like you, know, it's like, you know, your driving's terrible, but like who's the one that owns the car? Hmm?
1: I'll pull this car over and I'll make you get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, a great story for the doctor. I think. I think we can both uh, agree on that. Yes. Next up, we have someone who hasn't really had a lot of time in the limelight in recent stories but really got to show it here, what do you think of Susan?
0: Uh, I love Susan in the story and this is the character that we got to see the potential of that had been slowly building and I think it might have been too slow of a build Like, like the payoff is great but I think like I would have liked to have seen her be this like assertive in an earlier story
1: Yeah, we've kind of discussed a lot that she didn't really do much in some of the other stories.
0: Like, the fact, as I said, that she assesses the situation and just... Maybe it's like with the belief that her psychic abilities are more than her uh, grandfather's, which I think is another point that freaks him out. She's like, well, I can communicate with these people perfectly uh, on their own medium. I think for all... For the betterment of everyone, maybe it's I should go. So it's her taking command... um, I think that's a really interesting thing to see she's very involved in every aspect of the story like where's the cure for ian we need to go find grandfather i'll i'll call out commands to you as you go to rescue them that sort of stuff it's great and it's the susan that i would have loved to have seen a small bit earlier and there's one thing i want to call out is in the sequence where susan the first elder are talking about their respective homes And she gives this lovely monologue about um, unnamed planet soon to be called Gallifrey. It's just really beautiful. And well done to Caroline Ford for getting across that. Like It actually did seem like she was legitimately talking about somewhere that she came from and missed terribly.
1: Yeah, that was a great piece of acting from Caroline in that moment. And I love the bit of description that we get of their home planet. Yeah. I love that it's a description that they do keep quarters yeah. throughout the show and that you know up until this point susan has mentioned home way more than the doctor has yeah and you get the sense that she does really miss it but she likes adventure
0: hmm.
1: but you know she gets homesick which is understandable and we still don't know why they left in the first place so yeah did they leave to have adventure or did they leave for another reason did they have to we don't know The thing I find about Susan in this story is I completely 100% agree with you. This is her strongest outing to date. Yeah. And what I find super interesting about it is it's a bit of a juxtaposition because if you look at her in the episode, she looks like a primary school child.
0: (laughs) She's wearing a
1: pinafore and high stockings and she looks like she's a school child. But this is her most mature that we've seen her yeah While yeah the others take care of her in the same way that they always do because that's their natural inclination anyway she shows great maturity she figured out how to interrupt the sensorite's effect on john she has great insight we got to see great insight into her tele- telepathic abilities mm. and the connections it gives her to the sensorites and like you said she takes control you know she doesn't wait around for people to tell her what to do anymore And I think knowing that she had this telepathic ability and knowing how strong it was and maybe how it made her unique, you know, it was something that she could, you know, usually she's the kid and everyone has to take care of her. And this gave her an opportunity to take care of others. I think it really gave her the confidence she needed to grow into a full member of the team and not just the kid everyone has to take care of. Yeah. What I do love as well is I've mentioned previously, I think it was in the Daleks discussion, how Susan is very trusting and literally trusts anyone who comes her way. It's good to see that we get a little bit of growth in that here. Yeah. Where she tries to educate the first leader on how trust has to be earned. Mm. And I don't know if that's them trying to make her learn from previous mistakes or whatever the case may be, but it's nice that she's the one trying to help others learn and grow and we've kind of seen bits of that in the past with the way she was with her friend in Marco Polo the way she stood up for herself in the Aztecs but I think it really sort of came to the fore here she's not a little girl she's a young woman who's coming into her
0: own yeah and just to talk uh, point about the pinafore and uh, the high socks it's like this is like the Matilda story we never got to see
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually. So <laughs> cool. moving so,
0: down... Da- go on, sorry. No, no, I, I was actually going to say the same thing. Uh, moving on along the line.
1: Yeah, what do we think about Ian?
0: So Ian and Barbara are kind of lumped into the same category for me in the sense of this is very much a Doctor and Susan story. And Ian and Barbara are backup, I think. Yeah. And Ian... I what I loved about Ian in this story was that for once we get to see him put into the vulnerable position of being the one on death's door Mm. after being affected by the the tainted water supply. And I thought that was really cool. Like, it was great to see Ian not do that much. Because it gave, yeah, no, because it gave the other guys a chance to kind of grow. And as well, like, when you have a character that has been so strong for so long, it could become a potentially a bit stagnant. Yeah. And I would say that maybe like, um when they were writing this, they realized that and they kind of decided to push Barbara and Ian on the back burner a small bit in terms of the the hero moments, because the last couple of stories have been great for Barbara and Ian as well.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, in most of our discussions, whenever we get to Ian, like I've been calling him action man and like every story yeah. has been, Oh, Ian's been action man. This is actually the one story when I was watching it where his action man behavior is not needed for this story. Yeah. That part of him isn't providing any value. And in fact, it could have gotten them in a lot of trouble because the way he was reacting to the censorites, he was reacting in a very aggressive fashion. Do you know? Yeah. He was told, don't engage with them, don't fight them, don't attack them. And yet, when they're walking towards him and Barbara, his instinct was to grab a pipe. Yeah. And repeatedly threaten them with it.
0: Kind of speaking to your point about uh, your headcanon from last week about. Um... Ian Chesterton being the descendant of uh, Sir Lancelot it kind of does remind me of a different Sir Lancelot uh, Lancelot from Monty Python and the Holy Grail that just continually just dives into danger where there is no danger needed This is like you're like I'm sorry I just can't help it but when I see people like you know with weapons I can't help but fight <laughs> just kind of that type of thing
1: yeah and I think you know the fact that Ian was the character in the story who came down with the illness and who as you said was on death's door you know he was pretty much powerless for a large portion of this story. He did a little bit in Mm. the first episode where him and Barbara went to hunt down the sensorites and he did a little bit in the last episode. But he's basically powerless for so much of it. He can't help Barbara and Susan because he can't cut through the door. Now, why he didn't take over cutting through the door while the others went back to deal with the actual flight of the ship, I don't quite know. But he can't get to them. And he gets so frustrated because that's what he does. That's who he is. And he can't do
0: it. But, but as well because he um, became Down the Sickness we okay, <laughs> yes shout out to the band <laughs> disturbed for Doubt the Sickness uh, because he uh, did get uh, the tainted water supply we now got treated to like a rarity in Doctor Who which is a montage of yeah. like the doctor in the laboratory <laughs> with the different test tubes and all the different equipment and my, my personal favourite the list of District 1 no <laughs> There's like a handwritten <laughs> list. <laughs> All the scientific equipment and in order to eliminate possibilities you need to use a pen and paper.
1: But hey, it works. It did. So you said that like, you know, Ian didn't really get a whole lot to do in this story. He was kind of taking a backseat development-wise which is good because we got to see more development in Susan and the Doctor. And the other person was Barbara. What yeah. were your thoughts on Barbara?
0: So I suppose more so than uh, Ian she is also in the, the backseat of this one um, because, you know, she was on holidays, as you said. Uh, so she's up on the space station for about half the story. But what I did like about the times that she was here is that there's no deviation from her character. Like, she's her usual pragmatic, no-nonsense self, leading by example, kind, considerate and caring. that the, Like, when she we kind of had the we discussed the points uh, ages ago about uh, in An Earthly Child about she went from being terrified to immediately compassionate for ZA that she didn't want him to die of his wounds yep. whereas here it's like they're being stalked by a clearly deranged person in John and then when he has his emotional breakdown her first initial kind of thoughts are to is he okay so it's nice to see that that thread has run through the entirety of the story and even when she's not a focal point, Barbara's still a really strong character.
1: Yeah. I think actually the first leader or first elder rather actually put it really well when he said that she's gentle yet with strong determination and courage. That is Barbara in a nutshell. Yeah. And that is who she was in this story. You know, mama Barbara really comes out in her treatment of Susan. She's very protective of Susan But not in a restrictive Mm. way. The same way the doctor is. She became immediately so protective of John. And you know. Didn't. It it seemed didn't have any concern for her own welfare. When she realized that he was hurting. Yeah. As well we get to see her intelligence. Because when she comes to the sense sphere. After being separated from the rest of them for. What two days or something. Yeah. She immediately reads the situation. And immediately knows what the hell is. Like, they explain to her what's happening, and she's like, "Okay, this is this is this this is what the situation is." And we've seen that with her before. She's very good at piecing all these things together. So yeah, I think the first elder just summed her up in a nutshell with that quote. You're
0: you're 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 kind of making her sound like uh, Winston Wool from Pulp Fiction, like it, the fixer just appears. Give me the give me the gist. Okay, here's what we're doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which so, I now want to see, damn it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so for our story-based companions, we have the crew of the ship and then we have the first and second elder. Hmm. So what did you think of the crew of the ship?
0: So the crew of the ship, again, I suppose, because of the, the flow of the story, the nature of the story, they're a bit underdeveloped for me. They're like a, They're not really that engaging. like Maitland doesn't really make a huge impact Uh, Carol the thing with Carol and John is that John has gone through a really traumatic event and his transformation is I think it's just a small bit too perfect I would have preferred to have seen him be healed earlier and then have to deal with like residual PTSD as it went on and that would have developed Carol a small bit more as, as opposed to just Sitting by his bedside Until like The Was it the second to last episode Yeah And I I think they missed I think they missed the trick there But again like Because it's such a Doctor And Susan centric story They maybe didn't have the time To put in that development But I would have liked to have seen Something like that Because uh, Stephen Dartnell Did a really good job At getting John uh, Because initially You think he's like uh, Malicious or evil But he's not He's just a broken man And it's good acting on his part to kind of... You are kind of engaged in his recovery. But I think I would like to have seen him deal with the PTSD side of things a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think... I I completely agree with you about Carol and Maitland. That, particularly Maitland... I I almost wouldn't even give him the title of, like... Episode-based or show-based companion. Except that he's part of the crew. Um, Yeah. He doesn't really contribute all that much. Carol, I think contributes a little bit more and it's good to see her sort of on the planet um in those last you know two episodes you know building up a good friendship with the others do you know yeah um that's really good to see john while i agree with you on i would have liked to have seen him deal more with the ptsd when he was in his complete frame of mind yeah and maybe i'd like to have him comment on like i mean they locked him in part of the ship by himself yeah. there has to have been a reason for that beyond he didn't really remember them that well mm-hmm. um, so yeah. maybe we would have liked them to refer back to that but fair dues to the actor because his performance was amazing mm. particularly if you compare it to his performance in the Keys of Marinus <laughs> where we didn't really have a whole lot to say about him whereas here he's so powerful like the bit where like he's breaking down and he just wants them out of his mind it's it's so good i i think that while he didn't get as much development as i would have liked what they did give him i really really enjoyed N- mm. not enjoyed enjoyed the wrong word <laughs> i didn't enjoy his pain but it it was good
0: yeah it w- it, w- it was a good performance I, I i think just like i would have preferred to have seen that ptsd handling uh so that we he could have built upon it uh, one just small note on the ship's crew that I only just uh, oh, sorry two small notes. One is that it's not all the time in Doctor Who be what we've seen now or what we're going to see in the future that the story based companions get a happy ending. And this is a case where they do. John and carly are reunited, they're gonna have their wedding they're uh, they're gonna go back to Earth.
1: I feel bad for poor Maitland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: ah well you know he's got he's got his ship <laughs> yeah, but he has to
1: deal with the two of them on the way back
0: yeah it's like i hope he's got earplugs but like so it's nice to see like that everyone in the group gets a happy ending yeah. the other thing though is that c- the sequence where they're trying to cut through the door with the world's tiniest arc <laughs> cutter it's like if the guy in shawshank had used a teaspoon to try and get out I know he used a small rock hammer but my god like yeah I'm sorry not even a teaspoon a plastic spork that's what the equivalent was
1: yeah that was that wasn't great um,
0: I'll be our friend's life depends on you how far did he get a centimetre god damn man hurry
1: yeah but yeah. you mentioned that like the crew of the ship have their happy ending not everyone mm. got a happy ending though no they didn't the first and second elder the second elder in particular doesn't get a happy ending what did you think about the elders
0: so we'll discuss the second elder first because we've uh, as you mentioned there about the non-happy ending yeah. um, I think he's a very interesting character uh, per- frankly uh, in the sense of like you think that he's an antagonist but he's not based on his role he's a sounding board for the first elder so when he kind of tells him to, uh, I'm not sure if that's a good idea, it's not as in a, like, his own personal prejudices. It's his job as a good public servant to make sure that his superior has all the information he needs to hand.
1: I agree with you on that one.
0: And then, like, even though like he's been told that his family has been placed in captivity, or like, we're not even told other than, like, I'll kill your family. He doesn't know if it's a bluff. He doesn't know whatever it is. He still does what he can to help these complete strangers. Like he, he puts his own life at risk. And unfortunately, he pays the ultimate price to do the right thing. So I did quite enjoy the second elder.
1: Yeah, I think he's a very good counterbalance to the first elder who's quite trusting. And so mm. to your point, I think he fits his role quite well. Like, okay, well, if you're being very trusting, I'm going to have to question that trust because yeah. that's my job. Yeah. And he does that very, very well. The fact that he breaks so so easily whenever his family gets mentioned, I wouldn't see that as a bad thing either. Do you know? Because mm. it shows that he is a caring, compassionate individual. So if you weren't yeah. sure up until that point if his discussions with the first elder were based on you know, personal prejudice against humans or if they were based on being a sounding board, I think the the way he reacts to not is that his family is in danger is, it shows you what a caring person he is. Yeah. But yeah, no, I have I've felt really bad for the poor second elder. Mm-hmm. And then we have the first elder, who, like I said, is quite trusting. But I think he's a good leader. He doesn't trust blindly. He hears them out,
0: listens to the reason, listens to of? logic. Sorry, do you know who he reminds me of?
1: Who?
0: Kicking bird from Dances With Wolves.
1: That is a really good comparison.
0: Yeah, like, in the sense of, like, he he can't sense any out-and-out out evil from the new arrivals, but he's still wary of them, and he he would like to kind of get to trust them. And, like, he sits down, he has the meal, he accepts the Doctor's help, albeit under certain, con- you know, conditions. But, like, he agrees to get them weapons, he agrees to, you know, offer... Because like, he knows that the Doctor just wants to help him. Yeah. And again, like, listening to the sage advice of his counsel he goes in accordance with right they think this is the best course of action so I'm going to follow their advice
1: yeah and I don't think he um, how do I put it I don't think he's easily swayed by his counsel I think he gives it the respect that it deserves yeah one of the things that is true about him though is he is a little bit naive and blinded mm. by his belief that the society they have is a perfect one and that his people cannot and would not lie and as a leader I think that is his one is the chink in his armour as a leader that he believes that so wholeheartedly
0: yeah it it is like there are points where I kind of did want to kind of just shake him by the screen just going you know get real Uh, shake him by that like sash sash of his Uh, just get real but I overall I did enjoy him I, I did enjoy the character And as I said, he came across very densible wolvesy.
1: Yeah, but that naivety, I think, is why the second elder is who he is. And together they make really good leaders. You know? They they counterbalance each other quite well. Yeah. Then we have the not second elder. Yeah. The city administrator, the first of our villains.
0: You're not really painting a good picture of city administrators here, but I'll tell you that much.
1: He is one distrustful bastard
0: Oh he like Yeah <laughs> As I put down Bloody civil servants Up to no good as usual um, Like it's Like the thing is His Mistrust And his Like just aggression Towards them It just seems Right out of the blue Like If maybe if it had said You know they've had to Put in the line of like You know oh he lost his family Due to the The sickness Which he could then blame on the humans bringing it. Fair enough. But there's no reference to that. He just seems to be an out and out xenophobe.
1: I think. I think to him. He has a reason to be distrustful. Humans came to the planet. Tried to exploit them for. The ore in their planet. Yeah. Then they left. Their ship blew up. And now their people are dying. I think that is a genuine concern. That he has. But in sort of typical villainish fashion, he takes that one thing, ascribes and all humans are evil to it and refuses to change yeah. his mind.
0: Yeah. And again, like, even when it's like with the thought of like, even when he's presented with the evidence that they're trying to help us, it's like, nah, but there must be like, he reminds me of like uh, certain people I know. It's um, you know look, here's evidence that this person is good. Uh, I still don't trust them. Uh, I still don't trust them yeah and
1: like how far he goes with it as well i mean you know the first elder told us like oh but no one here lies and people are happy in their position clearly that's not true the city yeah. administrator lies a lot um mm-hmm. he clearly isn't happy just being the city administrator he wants to be leader the minute he get he catches on to the idea of well i could kill him and take his sash and that would make me second elder he doesn't hesitate and also, yeah. he was threatening the second elder's family repeatedly. This guy yeah. isn't a nice guy. However, way he might explain away his behavior, because his people are dying and he is the city administrator, that's just an excuse.
0: Hmm. I did kind of get a bit of a chuckle though out of the um, when like, Carol says, "Oh, sorry, like without your badges of office, I don't really can I can't really tell the difference." And it's like reminds me of like that Simpsons meme of you know like oh my god why didn't I think of that why didn't I think to like you would just wear the guy sash
1: yeah it is a little bit racist of Carol as well though
0: <laughs> yeah oh it it is it's incredibly racist like, Carol they all and, sound different yeah like like if if it was possible to have like a villainous overtype in censorite society like the city administrator he's got it in spades
1: yeah and like the thing that he uses the caste system in their society to Mm. his benefit yeah you know when we've been led to believe that that's counter to their societal norms yeah I think he's he's a distrustful bastard and a bit of a sneaky fucker
0: oh yeah big time
1: the other villain and I know that there's the two other people with him but really they don't do much is the commander of the original earth ship
0: what did you think of him so the reveal of like as I refer to them the fifth column um, which I didn't know what
1: you meant in your notes by the way
0: (laughs) okay fair enough Um, like for anyone like that's kind of uh, fifth column is essentially just like a saboteur group that managed to infiltrate a city and work uh, on the inside to bring it down
1: okay that makes sense I was watching this entire episode going where did he get that from (laughs)
0: Uh, the very kind of like, you know, Trojan horsey type thing. Um, but I think they're just like very underwhelming. If there had been more references... Like, there's like one thing that kind of confused me in that... Are there actual monsters in the Reservoir Caves? Or is that the the trio pretending to be monsters to frighten the Sensorites away?
1: It's the trio pretending to be monsters.
0: Alright, yeah, because I don't think that was... Re- was that actually really established?
1: Well, it's because... Well, it's kind of, it's all inferred, right? So, or implied yeah. whether. So, um, the sensorites don't like the dark. Yeah. So they were sabotaging the lights. Yeah. And we see that, that when Susan is... sees a light that, you know, and they don't investigate it further. So they were sabotaging the lights and they're sensitive to sound. So the humans took on this form of monsters in the dark.
0: Yeah, because like, I, I, the lights, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But with the, the monsters and that kind of stuff. And I suppose, yeah, like, If you think about it, the doctor's clothes are shredded, but there's no wounds on his body that would match up to whatever could do that to his clothes. Like he doesn't have scratches; he just has bumps and bruises. So yeah, I did
1: wonder wonder what did they do to his coat? Did they? (laughs) Yeah, it's like what are you doing? (laughs) Either their nails have gotten very, very long.
0: Yeah, (laughs) just raking him. Um, Yeah, but I just think like I would prefer to have maybe have a bit more of an overt sign of them throughout the story to kind of make you wonder is there something else out there or is it just you know poison in the water the fact that the guy is clearly insane and is, thinks they're at war like, I I think he would have been a good character but he's just introduced way too late in the game for me
1: yeah I think you know had we seen more throughout the episode or throughout the story where you know say when they leave the aqueduct we see even just their shadows moving or, yeah. you know, a hand coming out or, you know, we see you know, even like where they see the light bulb, if Susan puts in a light bulb and then mm. they walk away and then we cut back and we see the light bulb's been removed again. Yeah. Even with something like that. Um I didn't really write anything down about number one and number two because they're yeah they're not non people but like they they don't really do much. Um the commander though, he's an evil fucker. Um, oh, who think... the hell flies around in space with deadly nightshade just on their person?
0: Well, see, that's the thing. I'd be wondering that. Okay, so clearly, like, okay, so there's one or two things. One is Belladonna, a, a natural uh, occurring plant life on the sensphere. No one says anything to the other but like, is uh, deadly nightshade? is it using anything else that's beneficial or is it just one of those things that like kind of like every animal in Australia it's designed to kill you
1: I don't know but like the fact that this man is clearly cultivating it like when he says oh your next round of ammunition or something is ready he means that there's more nightshade after being cultivated Um, he has clearly gone mad as you said whether he just went mad in the dark of the aqueduct or whether he was mad beforehand we don't know but do you get the sense he's also like delusional in the sense that he thinks that there are more than just the three of them there? Because I found it quite funny; I couldn't help but laugh when he says to I think it's number one and he's like, "Oh, tell the men they did very good." And number one says, "Thanks." <laughs> yeah. Like
0: I am the men; it is me. <laughs> yeah. well, like that's the thing. Like um, you you kind of would because. You wonder what his instructions to the two guys are, because clearly they're only able to poison different water supply or different outlets to the water supply at different times Mm. for whatever. Because that was the the doctor said that it seems to be roving between the 10 districts and. You would like if it's a tactical play on his part, he probably wouldn't have said. say well done to the men yeah and as you said like it's just the guy in the corner going thanks thanks chief um so i think he probably does think there's uh one or two other guys there with them or maybe he's deluded himself into thinking that the two fellas that died on the ship are actually still normal part of the crew maybe
1: yeah because just like because the way he talks to ian and the doctor where he's saying like oh i have a great basically saying i have a great bunch of lads here they're very loyal and you're like you have two guys who you don't even call them by their name. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think he could have been an amazing villain as it was. He's a grand last episode villain, but I would have liked to have seen more from him.
0: Well, and you'd be kind of wondering like uh, as well, like that all three of them look like they've auditioned for the Dubliners, big bushy hair and beards. (laughs) I can can imagine it's a, a scenario of if he was, if he was completely insane, he'd be like, you got to better make sure that the haircut is regulation, you know? What do we use? The scissors we use to destroy that guy's coat. <laughs> so, thanks for another interesting discussion about the character growth and the villains of the week, Trish. Uh, how about we now discuss our overall scores for the story?
1: Sure. So, I have owned The Sense Rights on DVD for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably one of the first ones I got when I started collecting the Doctor Who DVDs back when we were in college. I don't recall ever watching it like repeatedly. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like the Aztecs that I watched over and over again. I don't know why. It's a nice solid story. Mm. Um, it has a few things that bothered me. Yeah. One in particular nearly had me putting my fist through the telly <laughs> which was that high pitched whine in the first episode yeah that's meant to make the sensorites coming like you know how i am with high pitched noises that nearly killed me yeah it went on for way too long and was way too high pitched <laughs> i literally nearly put my hand through the screen and like we said the whole thing with the humans on the sense sphere yeah that we would have liked a bit more development of them other than that, though, I think it was a good story overall. It flowed quite well. I was never bored. Yeah. I don't know why I haven't rewatched it more than I have. But again, to be honest, I don't know if I'll rewatch it again. Yeah. It's a nice, solid story, but there's nothing in it that draws me to it in any big way, if that makes sense. No,
0: no, it, it does completely, because, like, there's a lot of stuff there that you go, this is absolutely fantastic. How many times have you watched it? Twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just yeah, the it's, way... It, the way it is
1: yeah it's a solid science fiction story yeah i think it's a really good doctor who science fiction story sometimes they can be a bit dodgy Mm -hmm. this one was done quite well and for me it's a nice solid four will i watch it again probably not unless i'm doing a bit of a susan binge of her best moments but you know would i recommend someone to watch it yeah yeah totally
0: i'm a slight bit lower than you i've i've gone with a 3.75 because for me, I think the resolution is very rushed uh, in that, the, like the, fi- the the as we call them, the fifth column, they just kind of appear and would have preferred to have seen them a bit more. Also, the city administrator, he gets his comeuppance mm-hmm. off screen. I would have liked to have seen something kind of maybe him being accosted or thrown in jail or even if the guys just kind of oust him going like j'accuse or whatever the case is. Um, so I think the resolution does hurt it a bit for me. I agree with you in that it's a great science fiction story for Doctor Who, and it's great to see the Doctor and Susan as well getting centre stage. One thing I would like to point out, and I mentioned it in the Daleks, that I have a pet peeve for, I would say, humanoid, like earth-based or humanoid societies that have a tendency to dress the exact same way, same haircut, same pants, the whole lot. Now, with the sensorites, yes, they all look the same, Yes, they all wear the, the same uh, grey... Well, I think it's blue in the colorized photos. Uh, Spacesuit. However, their job de- designations or their title designations, there's different sashes and different emblems. Like, the first elder has two sashes going across ways. Second elder has one sash going uh, si- cro- uh crossways. The chief warrior, his ones are on his arms. Um, so I really enjoyed that aspect of it, that, OK, cool, there's a way to tell them all apart. They're not just as you mentioned a Tal 1, Tal 2 this Tal the special Tal that type of thing
1: yeah I think they did that really well Yeah. Um, I did find even from like the beginning where you see the hand coming in to take the key or the the lock yeah. mechanism out of the TARDIS I did kind of laugh that their day to day clothes are basically a onesie yeah they're basically going around in a onesie and gloves mm and their feet slash shoes slash i don't know what they're they're like like they look like big flipper things
0: Mm.
1: and looking into it apparently they were as you can imagine really difficult to walk in yeah i will say though that while the onesie was a bit off-putting i liked the way that they designated and it's kind of weird to say i liked the way they represented the caste system yeah but I liked the way they had clear ways to delineate who was who mm. which we don't always get. Yeah. And I did like their face makeup.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I watched it, I was a bit because I don't know if i you know, like you see those pictures of bald men with beards and people just flip it around so that their hair is on top of their head type thing. Yeah. And that's the very first time I watched the sensorites, like 10 or so years ago I'd seen that picture of Patrick Stewart with his goatee flipped around and that's all that came into my head because they have like chin whiskers going around uh, like the the sideburns chin whiskers all I could think of was are those masks upside down yeah I think it was good though I think it it it, it came across quite well no it did like on second time around yeah it looks perfect also I have to disagree with you I think that those pyjama suits they were wearing they they made me feel very comfortable I was envious I wanted a pair (laughs) Maybe not so much with the feet aspect are, of it. If you
1: ever go to a Doctor Who con, that can be your Doctor Who cosplay.
0: Absolutely. I dress for comfort, not for impression.
1: <laughs> the other thing with the face makeup.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mentioned this to you, not on podcast, but just, you know, me and Patty talk outside of yeah. the podcast. Um, I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I don't know why,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but like I said, I haven't watched this episode a lot over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um. I'd say I've maybe watched it four times total in those ten years, including watching it twice for today but when I was getting ready to go into today, I was like oh, it'll be really interesting to compare the sensorites to the is it the Talosians from The Cage? Yes. In Star Trek? Yeah. And I for, for years, I have associated those two beings as being quite similar. They're nothing like them I don't know why they don't look like them other than they have big heads. Yeah. Their mental powers are nowhere near the same. Their mm. behavior isn't the same. <laughs> Yet for ages, I sort of associated those two things as being similar. They're
0: not similar at all. No. Oh yeah, I get that. It's, it's with... I think when it comes to science fiction, like our early day science fiction, there's only so much uniqueness to certain things. Like like uh, one thing that I was kind of thinking about uh, going, as we mentioned earlier on, Um, and other episodes how much stuff other sci-fi franchises franchises seem to subtly adopt from Doctor Who and putting to like you know you've got sensorites who are like a telepathic based society with the Loisians who are also extremely telepathic Um, yeah you would kind of have that bit of a link but then again when you watch the stories that you see okay it's just the most basic of linkage everything else then is unique.
1: Yeah. I, I, don't, I said, I don't know why I got that in my head because I remember saying it to you a few weeks ago and you kind of gave me a funny look as if to go, why why do you think that?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just drop one of those like human anatomy charts. He was like, look, first of all, their brains are different. Their clothing styles are different, which I hate for the Thelosians.
1: <laughs> so, overall, solid sci-fi story. A couple of things we maybe would have liked better, but yeah. not a bad story to say the least. No.
0: And again, It'd just be like as i said like even though it's a 3.75 for me i would still recommend this story to watch for someone like you know, if they were interested in susan especially or if they wanted to see the more science aspect of a doctor who story i would definitely recommend this one definitely i don't know why i emphasize science there it was just weird
1: next week we will be discussing the eighth and final story of season one reign of terror so be sure to tune in for that
0: yes and if you would like to hear more about upcoming episodes and joining the conversation with us, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E, T E A M P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at time traveling teamp at com. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>